I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the, to, uh, the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Several key moves by our investment committee today as the rally. Well, to take a bit of a pause. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, Joe Terranova, and Amy Raskin. Uh, I'll show you what the markets are doing. Dow's down by about 137. S&P's off uh, by a fractional uh, amount there. NASDAQ with a nice bounce. Look at the 10-year. 417. Been as low as 416. So we're keeping an eye on that. I mentioned at the very top we have a number of moves, and that is where I want to begin today. As Stephanie Link, I, st- I start with you. I want to start with something you sold. Um, you sold 3M mm-hmm. because you sold it to fund some of the buys that I'll talk about in a second. But tell me why you got out of 3M now versus something else. It's a little bit of tax loss selling, um, not down that much in it. But I do think the recovery is still very attractive for, for the long term. I just think it's going to take a little bit longer. So within industrials, I just think that there are better opportunities that have more upside in the near term. And that being... Union, Union Pacific <laughs> you is one. Say it? Yeah, so uh-huh. Union Pacific is one. Um, this company has a new CEO, uh, Jim Venna. He was the he he was at a Canadian National for uh, four decades, and he did a great job. He was the COO of Union Pacific from 2019 to 2021, and he was able to find a billion dollars in efficiencies under his leadership. So now he's the CEO of the company, and it was announced in July, and yet and the stock popped on the news. And now the stock has been stagnant since then. And in in the meantime, since August, we've seen car velocities up 8%, train velocities up 10%, operating car inventories down 2%, and weekly car loads on average up 6%, meaning fundamentals are getting less bad. They're actually getting a little bit better. And I think they will be able to see a substantial improvement in margins. That's what he does. And so I think you can go from 18% uh, decline in earnings last quarter Fast forward a year, I think you're going to see 21% growth. So I think this is a great story, and it's a play on Jim Vena for sure. I'm going to get to this other one in a second. Who owns AXP? I do. Okay. <laughs> Can we show shares of AXP? I'm glad you do, because we'll get back to the move in a second. I do it because I don't want to sit on something that's moving um, <clears throat> rather dramatically lower at this very moment. It is Amex. It's down 3.5%. The CEO is speaking as we speak at a Goldman conference right now in which they said, and I quote, didn't see growth in October like it was in the third quarter. I think there's a lot going on in October. For November, you're seeing a little bit of a slowdown in air, a little fewer transactions, maybe a little bit of decrease in transaction size. But overall for the year, it's been pretty consistent with us, uh, for us with double-digit transaction growth, and that continues. So those comments, Steph, are being made. Um, really right now and the stock obviously is reacting not really surprising though because we're going to go from almost a five well 5.2 percent gdp in the third quarter to we're now running atlanta fed at about 1.8 percent so we are seeing a slowdown if you heard brian moynihan on uh one of the earlier shows this morning he said the same thing consumers still fine but we they are seeing a slowdown as you would expect this is exactly what the Fed wants to engineer. Um, and I think the data points, we'll get into the macro a little bit later, but I think the data points today that we got in terms of jolts is showing that we are seeing a slowdown. At the same time, the services se- a segment of the economy is still doing quite well, and new orders were the best since August. So I think we are going to be able to handle these higher interest rates, but it's going to be a little wobbly in terms of the trajectory of, of GDP. I think part of the point, too, is we, we, we really can't afford that much slippage, if you will, from the consumer. One of the things that's gotten us here 
uh, is a pretty perfect consumer, right, yeah. Joe? I mean, the other parts of the economy have been reasonably negative for a long period of time, right? Manufacturing gone through a recession, et cetera. The consumer has been all pretty much perfect, keeping us thinking that we're going to have a soft landing. Can't have any slippage in that. So we own Joe T. Uh, we own Joe T. We own Amex in the Joe T. ETF as well. Um, this pullback to me is an opportunity. This is a stock that has outperformed so far year to date. It's up 15 percent. This is a stock that, remember, doesn't have the credit risk that the rest of the banking community does correlating to where the consumer is on their ability to repay a lot of their debt. Um, it caters to the affluent consumer, as Stephanie has said. I actually think in an environment where the economy begins to contract, American Express is actually the one financial name that stands out above all the rest. So seeing where it is right now, uh, I will defend this stock backwards and forwards, both fundamentally and technically, and I say you buy it. 100% agree. It's trading at 15 times forward estimates, too, which is well below its historical average. This is best-in-class company. You, you look for days like today yep. to buy best-in-class on sale. That's what this is. Okay. I didn't mean to steer you away from the, the middle of the moves that we were going through, okay. but I just didn't want to sit here and on. wait mm -hmm. um, to get to a, a, a substantial stock like that that was seeing a decline. Sherwin-Williams is the other one that you bought. Yeah, and I've never owned Sherwin-Williams. I've always watched it, though, but I, I, I like it because of, of housing. I think 2024 is going to be the year of housing recovery because interest rates are coming down. We've seen mortgage applications come down the last four weeks in a row after rates have pulled back. So I think that's a nice tailwind for this company. They have a very attractive price-cost mix acceleration story to be told for 2024. As input costs come down, pricing stays firm, and we're still so undersupplied. Applied in housing. I know we're going to talk about housing a little bit later, but this company will certainly benefit uh, from uh, the 13 years of underproduction that the home builders have done over, you know, over the last couple, yeah, 13 years. So I think that's going to be a positive for them. Um, and I think that this company can grow mid-single digits in revenues and upper single digits in earnings. And I think they could see $12 a share by 2025. Uh, the other stock that's on your radar today that you bought a little is they're having their investor day today, I think, is, yes. is Johnson & Johnson, right? Yes, yes. Why'd you buy J&J? I didn't buy it for the analyst day. I bought it really because I think, you know, I like spins, and they finally did spin, Kenview, and, and it was a little noisy for in the, in the uh, beginning of that transaction. So now they, can, they still own 9% of Kenview, which is perfectly fine, but I do like their pharmaceutical business, which is 65% of total revenues, mainly on their cancer franchise. They've gone from $2 billion in cancer in their franchise t 10 years ago go to 12 billion last year. And I think that's going to grow substantially over time. I also like what they're doing in MedTech. They made two big acquisitions, though. That business is going to grow very nicely as well. The stock trades at a five and 10 year discount to its historical average. It has 3.1% dividend yield, and it's grown that dividend for 61 straight years. Okay. So that takes care of your moves. Now I go to Josh Brown. Josh, welcome. It's good to see you. Um, you bought Samsara, which is up 200% in some 12 months. Why'd you add this name? So I have a very small position that I just put on in response to the earnings they reported at the end of last week. This is a company that I believe is emerging as potentially um, a future giant in its space. And one of the things that I love about the company is that even though it had a huge move up on earnings last week, Almost nobody knows that it even exists. Uh, it's, it's got a ticker symbol that's a little wonky. It's IoT, which stands for the Internet of Things, um, which sounds nothing like Samsara. Uh, and it also came public at the exact worst time. Came public, I think, in December of 2021. 
and so spent two years basically as a not profitable enough tech company that nobody wanted anything to do with. That is now changing. This is the company that I think is in prime position to really be the internet of things play. If you think about physical assets, so take an airline for example, of which Samsara has two very large airline customers. Think of all the assets that they have, physical assets on the ground at every airport, every rolling vehicle servicing their, their aircraft, including the aircraft themselves. All of these things are being digitized. They have cameras, they have telematics, there's security. Um, the more a company knows what's going on with its physical assets, the more efficient and profitable that company can be, the more nimble they can be with the use of their stuff. So that's what Samsara sells. Uh, they're, they're, it's, it's billions of dollars uh, in revenue. It's, it's not a small business, it's a small company. People don't really know that it exists. Um, I think it'll be volatile. I don't think it goes straight up from here, so I bought a small position just to make sure I'm in the name. Interestingly, uh, Judge, uh, Mark Andreessen is on the board of directors here. They were early investors. There's a lot of smart Silicon Valley money here, but it's not an internet business. It's not a social network. It is a very physical business, and physical assets represent about 40% of global GDP. So I think it's a really interesting story. People should uh, listen to the last conference call and read about it. So the other move that you've made is you trimmed Uber. Uh, which has been on a remarkable run, just added to the S&P 500. Tell me about that move right now. Yeah, I, I had to take 10% off of my position, but uh, the other 90% I think I'm going to keep for the long haul. Uh, unless anything changes, I still think this is one of the um, biggest upside, potential upside situations in, in my personal portfolio. But it was my biggest position dollar-wise, and it doubled this year. So I have to be like prudent, I have to be responsible, I can't just let the whole thing ride. Uh, proportionally, it just had grown too large um, relative to my other stocks. So it's not a, a sell based on any change of opinion on Uber, it's just a housekeeping move. Um, I've done this with other big winning stocks that I have this year, uh, notably Nvidia, and it's important that you don't let your winners get out of control and become unwieldy because Risk management dictates uh, trees don't grow straight to the sky, mm -hmm. and uh, that's that's what I'm doing there. But I'm, right. I'm keeping my my position for the long term. That's good. It tees us up for for a, a move to you, uh, Amy. Whether it's time to trim some of your winners, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's portfolio management, you know, Steph has been trimming a good amount of Meta. The stock's had an incredible run. Uber's chart has looked fabulous. Josh trimming a little for the reasons that he yep. suggested, but overall. Is it time to trim some winners? I think it is. I mean, depending on the winners, of course, uh, we've been doing that as well. I think it is. I mean, we've just trimmed a little Inditex, which owns Zara. The stock's up 60% year to date. You know, it is getting to, as Stephanie said, maybe a little bit of a tougher consumer environment. They report next week. We still like it a lot, but it's done incredibly well. So we're taking some profits. Another industrial company, Cadent, we've trimmed. Again, done really well this year. And I do think as we go into 2024, people are looking at that. And um, you know, some people will wait till next year so they don't take the gains. Um, but it's not a bad idea to get a little bit ahead of that you know, if you, if you can. Joe, it leads us into where we think 24 is going to go. Savita of Bank of America today says you're going to you know, get this broad-based rally into year-end. S&P to 5,000. 
by year-end 24. We see more tailwinds than headwinds into 2024. I think the path is going to be a little bit of a volatile one. I would expect the first quarter to be a weak quarter in particular, coming off what has been a strong November and a strong December. To Amy's point, I think the the emphasis in January is going to be about rotating. Rotating. I heard Mike talk about it yesterday from the crowded to the neglected, and I really believe that's what's going to unfold. Large caps, mega caps, into small caps. I think that's going to be the rotational play in the early part of January into February. Uh, But expect some weakness to kind of work off some of the gains that we've seen here in November and December. And I think the market will steady itself, but I think it's a back half of the year story, probably more about Q4 than any other quarter. Well, Steph, that becomes then the, the debate. Like Lori Calvacina, for example, RBC Today, the time is now. Bullish on small caps into 2024. Katie Huberty, Morgan Stanley, wait for a better entry point to, to play small caps. You know, there are those who are looking for a, a rotation as you begin the new year some money coming out of mega caps and it's going into these other areas. Whereas we've had notes over the last week that have suggested that small caps, for example, are a value trap, Mm -hmm. um, that you're going to be able to get those lower, that it's just too early. What would you say? I mean, I just don't, I don't, uh, invest in, in small caps. I would if I if I can find some names. I mean, I own more mid-cap kind of things like Alonco, for example. But I, I think if you're going to focus on small caps, you also focus on other factors that trade with small caps, like value, right? And I mean, that, that absolutely will. They will both uh, trade together. And to me, the Russell 1000 value, trading at 14 times forward estimates when the Russell 1000 growth is trading at 24 times estimates. And that, to me, is, is, is kind of a real big disparity. And so I think that you will see a broadening. We started to see a broadening in November. I hope it lasts. It's not lasting today or for the first couple of days uh, so far in December. But I do think that the equal weighted S&P 500, there's a lot more compelling ideas there. That's one of the reasons why I found three stocks to buy, right? Because they they haven't done that well. And they are, they are trading at a very attractive multiple. Well, the multiple of the equal weight is like 15 times right, right. versus, you know, 18 20-ish something, 19 S- times yeah, for, the, for S- the, the S&P. Yeah. But, so okay. so I, th- I think when you're, when you're looking at comparing the S&P, the NASDAQ and the Russell, let's keep in mind where we are in terms of, er- of earnings. The Russell is still in a technical earnings recession. The S&P has come out of that earnings recession this quarter with 4.5% earnings growth. The NASDAQ, this is the second quarter, in fact, that the NASDAQ has come out of the earnings recession. We had earnings growth witnessed back in July for the NASDAQ. You don't have that yet for the Russell. And I think what will happen as you progress through 2024 is the comps will get difficult for the NASDAQ and the comps actually get easier for the Russell, in particular for healthcare and financials. And that's why I think it's a, a back half of the year story, even in an environment where you begin to see the economy decelerate, I almost make the argument, I'd rather own bonds relative to everything else because you're going to get the price appreciation as you see the decline in the economy. I think you have to wait. I think you have to be careful with a breakout in January and February and trying to call that leadership for the year in 2024 for the small caps. I don't think that's what that is. I think that's something that you actually want to fade. Well, and we're going into 2024 in the exact opposite position as 2023. We came into 2023, everybody expecting a recession. Interest rates had gone up so much, and everybody was saying, this is it. It's done. Well, now, and also tech, right, to your point about right, positioning. And tech had gotten crushed. Tech had gotten crushed. Right. 
And right. here we find ourselves where tech's the runaway We're winner. We're in the exact opposite position. But small caps, it really depends on what your view on interest rates are. If you think small caps have much more debt, they have less cash, higher interest rates are worse for small caps than they are for large caps. And that's what we've seen this year. So it's a lot, it, it, it really is tied to rates. If you think we're going into a slowdown, sort of counterintuitively, rates come down. That is actually somewhat better for small caps. I know it's, it sounds counterintuitive that we're going into a little bit of an economic slowdown, but the fact that is that the rate, the small caps have really been tra trading with interest rates. Well, it depends why interest rates are coming down, too. If they're right. coming down for the quote-unquote right reason, right. Right, because, because inflation the Fed can, coming not down. because they have exactly. to. Exactly. The, back to the Waller comments. Exactly. Right. But, and right. Josh Brown, so, you know, that that's really where the bull case and the, the bear case come up against one another. To Chris Harvey's point today of Wells Fargo is the idea bull case that the Fed's going to ease, technicals look better, history's on your side. Versus the bear case where people think they have too much rate predictability and it's going to be more unpredictable. And the VIX shows that people are too complacent at 13 and that EPS growth is not going to be nearly as good as the bulls would have you believe. So it, then the question becomes, which case do you believe in most? Yeah, it is. I, I agree. It is very tough because we have had a lot of tightening. One of the things that we've learned this year is that the economy is just less sensitive to uh, tightening than we thought it was, especially against the backdrop of a labor force that is short bodies and a situation where people basically had like an 18-month runway with um, COVID-era stimulus uh, to, to keep spending down. That's, that was then. So now what changes if we go into the new year? Well, I think the bar starts to go up for earnings. It's been coming down for three quarters in a row. But Q3, we actually had earnings growth. So now maybe that gets a little bit more challenging for companies uh, to exceed. Uh, and then the second thing that happens is, if you believe 100 years worth of economic history, uh, there is a lag effect for these types of rate hikes. We've seen the lag. Now when do we see the effect? Maybe that starts to hit early next year. I'm unconvinced that today's jolts mean that something has materially changed. I'm unconvinced that if we get a print of, uh, you know, 180,000 jobs added, that it's, it's going to be this, like, meaningful downshift in the labor market. I think we need more time. Uh, but if things stay pretty much the way they are in the first couple of months of 2024, I still think you're going to see a lot of people who have been sitting in money market funds, trillions of dollars, change their mind about the equity opportunity and come in. So my bias is we're going to see more of what we're seeing right now. I just don't see any of the evidence that the bears have put forth that their case is all of a sudden about to come true. To the point, Joe, that, you know, the, the bulls are expecting cuts too soon. As Leesman was posting earlier today, the market's pricing in cuts starting in three meetings. Yeah. December, January, no. And then March. The yeah. first cuts are priced yes. as of March. Yeah, it's, it, it's actually remarkable. And, and maybe that's the trigger. Maybe that's the inflection point to drive capital out of these cash yielding equivalent instruments that Josh is citing. I'm not so confident on that just yet. And it's interesting because everyone looks at 2024 and what they describe the environment as is one in which capital comes out of cash and goes back into risks. To me, that's a prove, prove it moment. To me, that is, you're going to have to witness 
a reversal, a pivot in monetary policy. I think what's more likely is that you continue to get this rotational activity within the equity market itself. And to a certain extent, you could expand that into bonds as well. Joe, what happens if the 10-year goes below four? Okay, we were at five. Then the Fed cuts. Not that long ago. No, (laughs) Judge, to the point of, hold on, I'm talking about the point of what forces cash out of money markets into risk Mm -hmm. assets. A 10-year continuing to climb, forget what the Fed necessarily does. If you continue to get a pullback in yields, you think money's just going to sit? So sit there? I, yeah, I, I almost want to want to get up and give you a pound because God, I hope that happens. Being in the asset management industry, that's been the challenge for the entire asset management industry: motivating people out of cash, getting them back into risk, getting them to realize that ownership of equities is the place that you want to ultimately be. Scott, I just don't know what the price point is that triggers that. I am not necessarily sure. Keep you going cite in this direction. You're you, going to find out I hope quickly, so, probably. but you cite 4%. We're 15 basis, away, 15 basis points away from 4%. I don't know what the actual trigger is. I'm hopeful, maybe consistent to what Josh is saying. Maybe it's hearing from the Federal Reserve, or maybe- hearing that the Federal Reserve is really ultimately done, and they make the, the 2019 style pivot. Or maybe it's just earnings come in better than expected, and stocks follow earnings, right? Earnings can be better than expected. If you have a 2% GDP for the top line, that's going to help. And everyone's thinking that margins are going to roll over and hard. And I just, I don't see it. Not with input costs coming down, not with rates coming down. That's very favorable. And you also still have companies that have a lot of pricing power. Maybe not as much as they had, but the point being is maybe earnings actually do hang in there better than expected. And that's going to propel the market higher. And then you're going to see the chase from people on the sidelines in money markets. Josh, I cut you off. What do you want to say before we take a break? All of the inflation is in the how the Fed is calculate uh, how the measure the Fed pays most close attention to uh, uh, PCE calculates shelter uh, costs. That's it. That's the that's the source of the inflation. The supply chain story is over. The commodity driven inflation is is mostly in the rearview mirror. The the rate the the raises on top of raises for workers. We're already seeing the end of that. Now we have companies writing these eloquent letters whereby they lay off 17% of their staff in a third round of, of job cuts. So if, if you know that, and we do know that empirically, that all of a sudden those absurd shelter calculations that are from 12 months ago are starting to roll off, then ask yourself, the Fed talks all this stuff about how they're data dependent. Well, what data will they be looking at that will have them keeping a Fed funds rate at five and a half percent if inflation is closer to two and a half or two percent. What is the what is the statistical or the data driven reason for them to keep rates there? So I don't think the bulls need rate cuts. I think the bulls understand that the direction that the next rate moves are going to come will be cuts, right. whether they happen in Q1 or Q4. That, that is the salient point. That's why you know, people reacted so positively to what Waller said, whereas Steve yep. Leisman suggested at the time, which I thought was so well put, that he said the quiet part out loud. We shall see. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, our halftime headliner, Lyrical Asset Management's Andrew Wellington will be live at Post 9 today. His value fund is beating 96% of his peers this year. He's going to give us top picks as we head into a new year. Halftime back in two. Welcome back. Our halftime headliner is with us today. 
Andrew Wellington, he's the co-founder and chief investment officer of Lyrical Asset Management. He runs a value-based mutual fund that's up 19% this year. Welcome back. Good well, to see a, you, Scott. A value investor up 19% this year. But I look at your holdings and I'm like, I don't know. This guy looks like a growth <laughs> investor hiding out as a value guy. I mean, you have those kinds of stocks. We do. And, you know, value and growth aren't always the best labels. I'll say our value bona fides are unquestionable. The average P in our portfolio is 10 times. But we happen to find companies with great organic growth, great EPS growth. We just don't pay growth multiples for them. Let me ask you this, because it's so apropos to where we started our conversation with today on this idea of a rotation into other areas of the market outside of the Magnificent Seven, whether it is believable or not. I want you to listen to what John Rogers of Ariel told me earlier this week down in, in D.C about that very topic, and I'd love your opinion to it. Here's John Rogers. Well, I think the top of growth stocks is coming again. I really, really do. You saw, the, the journal had a story today, the Russell 3000 is up roughly 34%, and the Russell 3000 value is only up 2%. It's one of the largest gaps in the history of, you know, the recorded history, I guess, of looking at those indexes. So uh, that gives me a lot of confidence that small value is going to be the place to be. Uh, and that growth stocks are going to have a very difficult time as we go into next year. Well, that's a very astute value investor, obviously. Uh, is that gap about to close, as he suggests? God, I hope so. <laughs> but I'll say we've been waiting for it for a while. It will close eventually. I'm confident of that. But getting the timing right on that, uh, that's been proven to be very difficult. But things that cannot go on forever, don't. So let's go through some of your, your stocks. Your most recent trade is Expedia. Tell me why. Well, um, Expedia is a really interesting story, great company. If you look back over the last 15 years, they've grown their earnings at 15%. Uh, that's kind of the growth rates you see from uh, Apple and Microsoft and Google. And yet Expedia, like I said before, it's got great growth, but it's around 11 and a half times earnings. Now travel had a huge problem during COVID, but by early 2022, they were back to their pre-COVID earnings. They're 50% higher today and yet we still have that low multiple. Some people worry about the top down, uh, about travel being above trend, but I think what they're missing is the bottom up story with Expedia is amazing. Uh, there's a huge margin expansion going on as they consolidate and focus on their core platforms. And people also don't realize that while we all know the Expedia site for online travel agencies, a quarter of the business is VRBO, which is growing very fast, and another quarter is a fast growing B2B operation. Joe, you have this in the, in your ETF. I, I do, and you know we 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 bought it pretty pretty well uh, below a hundred dollars, and this is one of the few stocks where you could actually find momentum in the market. I know that's not what Andrew's targeting, uh, but in addition to the strength of the balance sheet and certainly the way the business has been managed, and again, I think unfortunately Expedia and even Booking Holdings, I think a lot of people look at these companies and say, okay. What's the macro? And these are going to be instruments that we're going to utilize to reflect what our bias might be on the macro. And I just think it's the completely wrong way to look at these businesses. In the case of Expedia, I think another thing that benefits them as, uh, as well is not having the type of exposure to the Middle East that Booking Holdings did. So you saw a lot of rotation of money go away from Booking Holdings into Expedia because of that. Largest position overall right now is United Rentals. Yeah, um, may not be a household name, but all you have to do is walk around Manhattan and see a construction site, and you'll see lots of construction equipment with United Rentals slapped on the side. 
They're the largest equipment rental company in the U.S. Uh, their big driver of their business is non-residential construction. And I think this stock always people worry about cyclical concerns, that we're going to have a downturn. What is a huge potential offset to that is all this fiscal stimulus, all this stimulus. You got a billion dollars of non-residential construction from the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, half a trillion, I said a billion, a trillion, half a trillion from the Infrastructure Act, onshoring the CHIPS Act. Um, in a typical downturn, uh, non-residential construction falls about 12% over two years. All those stimulus adds up to two trillion over 10 years. And you got, when you zoom out, while there's a little cyclicality here, this is a company that's grown their earnings at 19% a year for the last 15 years. Steph, didn't you used to own United well, Rentals? I, I, yeah, for years I owned it. I think, and now a new great man, it's not, not really new anymore, but fairly new management team. They've just done a great job in terms of execution and margins. Do you have an opinion? I mean, I, I feel exactly the same on infrastructure. I own Quanta Services. I own Parker Hannifin. I mean, I own a whole bunch of them. But do you feel any? Do you feel the competition coming from something like a Caterpillar? There's uh, always a comparison between the two. Well, equipment rental. Uh, they're a Caterpillar customer. Right. They're by far the largest, and even with that, the top three companies in the U.S. account for, I think, less than a quarter of the whole industry. So there's still, I think, a lot of tailwinds to growth here from further consolidation. Oh, now a, now a stock very close to Stephanie Link's heart. Broadcom. Broadcom. As we spend so much time talking about AI and these growth stocks and all the focus on NVIDIA and Steph's argument all along has been Broadcom is the way to play this because it is cheap certainly relative to what she says NVIDIA is trading at. Table, I pass to you. One, what isn't uh, cheap next to NVIDIA? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and Broadcom's the least cheap it's been in a decade. Um, sure. It always amazed me. Broadcom had one of the most successful M&A strategies I've ever seen. They've grown their earnings at 30% a year for a decade, and yet it wasn't until a couple of months ago that the stock ever got above a 15 multiple. So it's nice as a long-term holder of Broadcom to see it get a multiple. Um, and it got a huge bump from the AI trade, probably a lot more than it deserved. You know, by our math, AI adds about 10%, perhaps a little more value to the company. You got another 10% from the recently closed acquisition of VMware. So it's not as expensive as the multiple may make it seem, and it's not that expensive even without that. It's about the same as a market multiple with much higher growth. Well, there's no question, Sino re-rating re from 16 times earlier this year to 20, got as high as 23 times. One day it was up like 10% on the whole AI craze. It's now kind of pulled back to 21 times. There's no question I think the quarter is going to be mixed. I think AI is going to be able to deliver the strong growth, 50% sequential growth is expected. I do worry, though, when I look at Marvell and I look at Cisco and I look at the inventories building in networking and storage. So that's because that's a big part of their business as well. So I don't think it's going to be super clean, but I do think maybe they get bailed out from VMware because I do think VMware changes the narrative for this company to more recurring revenues, especially on the software side, which should help margins, and they already have leading in, uh, industry margins. Well, the stock doesn't always go up on every quarter, no, but I think they've like only missed on earnings once in the last decade. I know. You know, so that's over 40 quarters of beating earnings and one of missing, and I think that might have been during COVID. And know. there you go. So you buy that, you get a buying opportunity most of the time, for sure, especially if they raise the dividend and increase the buyback. Let, let's talk Uber, um, lastly. 
Top of our program, we mentioned Josh Brown trimming a little bit of his, like 10%. He still loves the stock. And, and as you know, um, the chart has looked great, and the stock's now added to the S&P 500. Where is the valuation now in, in your mind of this company? Well, we talked about Uber last time I was on back in March. And since then, uh, they continue to execute as we expected them to. There's been no change to our intrinsic value, but the price is a whole lot higher. It still is a really good value here, but it used to be a great value. Um, and so, you know, if the intrinsic value doesn't go up, but the price goes up, that's a bunch of upside that's been realized that's not there for the future. So uh, I can't say we've trimmed it. it. It sounded like it was much bigger in his portfolio than ours, but you can't, you know, just because it's up doesn't mean it's worth any more. Sure. Joe? So I, I own each one of these stocks that you've spoke about today. What's the common denominator of every one of these stocks is strong revenue growth. So when, when you kind of look at being a value investor, I think of healthcare, I think of financials, none of these, none of these sit in those sectors. How do you see the type of growth that these companies can deliver to you as a value investor in sectors like financials and healthcare, which are overwhelmingly the large part of what the value story is? So one, I'd like to make, it's good to have growth, but what's more important is not to pay for it. That's why we're value investors. Paying for high growth doesn't get you great returns. Underpaying for it does. When it comes to those other sectors, um, we have a tough time investing in healthcare because so much of it is biotech and pharma, and they're so difficult to analyze and get right. When it comes to financials, uh, as I've said many times, we don't own banks. We haven't owned banks in over a decade. Wow. They're too hard to analyze too. But there's a lot of other great businesses in financials. We own Ameriprise in wealth management, uh, affiliated managers group. You may call them financials or not, but a company like Global Payments yep. um, is as much a tech company as financial. So there's a lot of good companies we own that have good growth, that are cheap. They provide services that are financial, but they're not your classic financial services. Well, whatever you're doing, you're doing it well. <laughs> we set up 19%. Congrats, it's good to see you again, and uh, we'll see you soon. Hope to. All right. Bye. That's uh, Andrew Wellington joining us right here at Post 9. The headlines now with Kate Rooney. Hi, Kate. Hi, Scott. USAID chief Samantha Power arrived in Egypt today with food and medical supplies. Power announced more than $21 million in additional assistance for Palestinian civilians. The aid package will support hygiene, food and shelter and supplies, as well as funds to establish an NGO-operated field hospital in Gaza. Senator Bernie Sanders spoke out against a $10 billion aid package for Israel as part of a national security spending bill. Sanders called the Netanyahu government's military actions immoral and a violation of international law. The senator added that he supports money for defense systems such as the Iron Dome to protect Israelis from rocket attacks. And Eric Trump is expected to take the stand again tomorrow as a defense witness in his family's civil fraud case. He will be one of the last witnesses in that case, former President Trump is expected to attend that trial on Thursday and be the final defense witness next week. Scott, uh, Scott back over to you. All right, Kate, I appreciate that, Kate Rooney. We do have a market flash now on some media stocks. Let's get to Dominic Chu uh, with the details. It seems, Dom, from what we see here, that this is related to charter and then uh, other things are falling as a result, correct? Yeah, that's right, Judge. What we're, what we're seeing right now, it's directly related to charter communications, which is currently down about 7%, as you're seeing on your screen there. The reason for that intraday plunge that you're witnessing right now are due to comments being made by Charter Communications Chief Financial Officer Jessica Fisher, who's speaking at the UBS Global Media and Communications Conference 
uh, right now, or, or at least in the last 10 minutes or so. She has delivered some comments with regard to what she sees as the state of charter right now. And it was specifically this line that's possibly causing the, the reaction that you're seeing. She is saying she is saying basically that the month of November has been similarly soft with regard to some of the traffic that they've seen. So I can certainly see that it's likely we could end up with negative internet net additions inside of the fourth quarter. That's the reason why Charter Communications is down, and that's the reason why Comcast is also down alongside with it. And by the way, of course, Scott, the disclosure, Comcast is the parent company of NBC Universal and CNBC. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, I appreciate that, uh, Dom Chu. Thank you. Coming up, we'll do our calls of the day. We do have several PayPal and XP, IBM. We'll go through them coming up. We're back to run through some calls. PayPal, number one. Initiated coverage over at BMO today. The rating of market performed. Josh, you bought it just last week. They set a target of 65. They do call it the, quote, least preferred name among their fintech coverage. What say you? I'm having a lot of fun searching amid the rubble of the, uh, quote, unquote, work from home stocks. Uh, I bought a bunch of them, Zoom too. Look, I think PayPal deservedly has just been absolutely hammered. They're facing really tough competitors in the shopping carts on every website, especially Apple and uh, Google and ShopPay, et cetera. But I think most of that is now in the stock, and the company is pivoting to new areas of growth where they don't necessarily have to just compete, compete, compete. That's why the new CEO is there. And the stock is cheap enough that I have time to wait for them to figure it out. So I'm not like crazy bullish PayPal. I just think that there's more potential upside than potential downside from where it's priced today. Okay, TD Cowan, Joe, says NXP is a top pick. Boy, Outperform, 250 the price target. I mean, that's only 10 bucks higher than where their original price target was at 240, but nonetheless, you do own that. I hope so, because this, this is a stock that needs to prove itself to me. It was put into the uh, Joe T ETF back in April at around 165. Ran up in July on strong earnings to two and a quarter. It's pulled back. The exposure to mobile, the exposure to auto. We're seeing chip demand in autos beginning to weaken. Last quarter was not good for NXPI. So I'd, I'd like to see a little bit more of a fundamental recovery on this stock. I'm somewhat suspicious of it. I actually like on semi a little bit better. Okay, Steph, IBM reiterated as a buy today. Bank of America price target goes to 170 for 155. They say the setup looks pretty decent heading into 24. Well, I think so, but it's also up 18% since late October, and it now trades at 17 times forward. When I was buying this thing, it was at like 11, 12 times. But I do think operationally they're doing a better job. Software consulting is now 75% of total revenues. That's recurring revenues, better for margins. Free cash flow looks pretty good at about $10.5 billion for next year. So I like it. A little less compelling after the run, though. Okay. Up next, Mike Santoli. He joins us with his midday word when we come back. Dow's down, as you see, 142. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli is at the desk now. Um, Russell stands out today because it's getting ripped a little bit. What else uh, are you looking at? Right. So just a little bit of spillback from the very clean rotation in favor of, uh, of the field and away from the, the winners that we've seen recently. I mean, I think that the move in, in yields has to be front and center and what it means is the softening job market, inflation expectations, market-based and otherwise start to fall. And we're very much in this mode of 
Um, we like it until we don't like it. <laughs> so you don't want to see it weaken too much. We have the raising the stakes a little bit for the jobs number on Friday. All around, it feels very comfortable in terms of the backdrop because you always get this phase where it seems like a nice balanced labor market equilibrium. Uh, and that's good for financial assets. And the question is, you know, what the trajectory is into next year. Um, feels like everybody who really needed to do some buying to make sure they got exposure for the end of the year did it. Yep. And now it's about want to or whether you want to cash in or how much you want to let it ride. Well, I mean, look at the 10-year. Um, that's a remarkable drop that we've yeah. seen from five down to 416. It's at 417 now, but it seems to be trending that direction further. Yeah, I mean, there was a pretty good case to be made that it was going to be stickier around four and a quarter. Maybe it still will end up that way. BlackRock has a kind of amazing chart showing the sensitivity of the 10-year yield to economic surprises over the last six or eight or 12 months, and it's just off the charts in terms of how tightly wound the market is to every surprise, because I don't think we still have a good fix on how this cycle is going to play relative to, you know, historical norms. All right. I'll see you uh, on Closing Bell right. in a little bit. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. Up next, we've got some new moves to go over as well in the gold market. We'll discuss next. All right, we're back. Uh, gold's been on the move, as you know, and Joe, you added to the GLD. I did, and let's let's. I'm going to be candid. I didn't add at a good price. I added look, within the last 48 hours, so I added a little bit higher. Um, I initially had bought it on November 27th. Anytime gold dips, I will buy. Why? I will buy dip because I believe that gold in the commodity space is the highest correlation to the disinflation that we see currently in place. And if you get the pivot in monetary policy, I think gold is the way to play it. Mm, okay. And you'll uh, also see one other quick point on that. Yeah. Commodity flows, okay, you'll see a lot of capital going out of copper, going out of agriculture, going out of oil itself, and that's what's going on right now, and it'll go into gold. You just added, Amy, to a gold miner, correct? Yes, we own gold as well, I agree. With real yields coming down, gold will continue to do well. But we also added to Franco Nevada, a gold miner, um, it's gotten killed in the last couple of weeks on issues with the Panamanian uh, mine that has had issues. Um, we don't think it comes back quickly, but we think it will come back. Okay, I appreciate that. And like, why don't we show gold itself, right? Are we still around 21, 2100? We're working on it. <laughs> We're still working. There you go. Well, it's a little less than that. 2036. We're back with finals next. Well, we're going to have some fun on Closing Bell today at 3 o'clock Eastern because we're going to have a big debate at the top of our show between Bull John Mowry, Bear Eric Johnston, where they see the markets going from here and why. And then, O's the Mentalist Perlman. He joins us. That's going to be fun. I have no idea what he has planned, but you don't want to miss it. You never do. I will see you at 3 o'clock. Josh Brown, Final Trades. Uh, I'm going to change my I'm going to change mine. I'm going to go PayPal. Uh, the more I think about it, the more this stock is due to have a happy ending on the year. Which was yours to begin with? Amazon? Yeah, but uh, PayPal seems like a more exciting opportunity to me. OK, fair enough. Amy? Um, I'm going to go with Cognex, sticking with the productivity in the non-digital economy. Um, it had a tough year, but we think it like it long term. Who's got Costco? I have Costco. Costco breaking out on momentum. I know the valuation's a little bit rich to report earnings next week. And Stephanie Link, that oh. must be you with HD. Oh, it's not breaking out, but I actually think it's a great 2024 story. One more tough uh, compar comparison in the next quarter to get through, but the stock is cheap. 
and I think they're continuing to gain market share. You guys see Apple today, by the way? We didn't even talk Certainly about did. it. Certainly yeah. did. It is up better than four bucks. That is 2.2%, and the stock is moving back towards 195. So we're going to watch that for the remainder of the session. Update you, of course, on Closing Bell, which I will see you then. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.